We've been looking at uh, a passage in James uh, for the last few weeks, and you can go ahead and turn there, James chapter 3, that we'll be looking at uh, this morning. And what, what we're seeing is, is that uh, James, as he's writing to the Christians who have uh, been scattered abroad in the uh, early days, uh, he's challenging them to evaluate themselves and decide whether or not, even though they're a part of the body of Christ, are they truly Christians? Are they a pretender or a genuine believer? And what we've seen in uh, the first part of this passage in James chapter 3, verse 13, is that a pretender is fleshly, human. They embrace a demonic wisdom, which encourages them to act upon their selfish jealous and bitter desires that are in their heart. And God makes it very clear through James that if they pursue this wisdom that's from the earth, it will ultimately lead to disorder, which implies just rebellion, insurrection, whether it's personally against God or even against the order in which God has created. And ultimately, evil of every kind. And now, starting last week, we want to uh, look at the genuine believer and contrast him with the pretender. Because the pretender has an ultimate goal that was very clear, and that is themselves. For example, the goal of a pretender is to secure happiness in this life. If God doesn't give the pretender everything he wants, when he wants it, then he's more than willing to sin and dishonor God to get it for himself and get it now. For example, he's willing to lie to get a job, cheat to earn a grade, steal to enjoy the lifestyle he can't afford, destroy two families by coveting a neighbor's wife, Use guilt and manipulation to secure money and privileges from others in the church. Exaggerate to improve his reputation, etc. Or, the pretender is willing, if he's given things by God that he didn't want, he didn't ask for, he's willing to justify and excuse his sin against God, such as resent a spouse for a rebellious child, curse God for a debilitating disease, blame parents for personal failures, justify a lifestyle of drunkenness or immorality because of past hurts, become unfaithful in a loveless marriage, yell at your children because they make you angry. The pretender is willing to sin to get what he wants when he wants it. But James wants to contrast the pretender with the genuine believer. And as we saw last week, one of the first things that he mentioned is is that the believer would prove his faith. He would demonstrate it in his lifestyle. And today, he's going to emphasize another area that's important 
And that is, it's an attitude of the heart. The genuine believer is going to have a different attitude rather than I deserve and I demand and I require or I'm willing to sin. It's I have a a heart where I'm willing to even suffer in this life now so that my Savior, my King, can receive glory and honor. I'm willing to deny myself for Him. Complete opposite of the pretender. So why don't you look there at James chapter 3. We'll look at the passage and uh, then we'll dive in. Starting with James chapter 3 verse 13. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So again, as we saw here, last week we looked at the very first phrase that's in verse 13. And James made it very clear, as Jesus said, you will know them by their fruits. It's a faith that actually works, as James says earlier in chapter 2. It's not just where you attend, what organization or group you're a part of. It's show it. Prove your faith by your good works. And then he moves to the second point in verse 13 that we're going to look at today. And I like how the complete Jewish Bible renders this phrase. How are they supposed to demonstrate uh, and prove their faith? He says in the second half of the verse there, and I like like the Jewish Bible's rendition, it says, by actions done in the humility that grows out of wisdom. Let me read that again. By actions done in the humility that grows out of wisdom. James wants to make it clear that a genuine believer will exude a different heart attitude than the pretender. And that attitude is one of humility and gentleness toward God. Toward God. What does it mean to be humble? This word actually is translated in some of your Bibles as meek or gentle. What does this word in the Greek actually mean? According to uh, one uh, dictionary of the New Testament, this word gentle means an inwrought grace of the soul. Let me say that again, because that's a mouthful. It's an inwrought grace of the soul. Its expression is primarily toward God, not toward others. It's an attitude where a person is chosen to accept God's dealings 
with them as good. I believe that what's happening is good. Gentleness means to choose not to dispute or resist God, but to surrender and to submit. It's a condition of mind and heart which demonstrates gentleness in power. It's a balance born in strength of character. What we're going to do this morning is, um, my original plan was to talk about how the Lord wants us to be gentle. But I realize the only way to best explain that and for you to fully understand it is, we'll have to talk about that next week. This week, we need to look at how, how are we going to understand and wrap our mind around this concept of gentleness because it's so crucial. I'll be honest. When we look at the other uh, principles of what it means to be a genuine, genuine believer that are listed here by James, this issue is so crucial because this mindset is the basis upon which the others hinge. And it's this transformed perspective, a different set of glasses that we as Christians should put on that should dictate everything else in our life. And nobody models gentleness and that perspective better than Jesus himself. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at Christ. We're going to look at the gentleness that he modeled. And then we're going to ask the question, why in the world did he do that? There's got to be a reason. What's the motive for why in the world he humbled himself the way he did? And that's going to be key because when it comes time next week for us to look at how are we supposed to be gentle that comes from a wisdom that is from heaven, what does that look like? How does it relate to your life and my life, which is not always ideal? So let's dive in. As was read this morning, why don't you turn over to Philippians chapter 2. And the interesting thing about this passage is, Paul, when he was writing to the, the Philippians, what he wrote here was not, not that he was trying to put together a treatise on theology, even though this passage is amazing theology. He actually was just using it as an example for uh, an admonition that he was giving to the believers there in the church at Philippi. And we'll look at that admonition next week. But today we're going to look at the reason why we as Christians should follow the admonition in the first five verses of chapter 2. The reason is, is given right here, starting in verse 6 of chapter 2. Let's read together. Christ Jesus who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What I want to do is take the time to go through what does it mean when Jesus modeled for us humility? 
And then we're going to look at why in the world was he willing to do this? Because what Jesus modeled is exactly what he's going to be asking us to emulate. Look at verse 6. The first thing that Jesus did was he humbled himself. It says there he did not regard equality something to be grasped. In other words, when Jesus took on flesh, he was never going to use his power or authority for personal advantage. Because he felt that his prerogatives, his privileges of being a God, he was God, was not a thing to be grasped, meaning something to uh, claim as a prize, something that he deserved, something that he should take by force. So first of all, he had a mindset regarding his position with God. He refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine Son of God. And he didn't feel that it was something to be used for himself. He was willing to suffer the worst possible humiliation rather than demand the honor, privilege, and glory that was rightly his. He was spat upon. He had a hood put over his head. Hit. Prophesy. Who hit you? He was mocked. Humiliated. And at no time was he willing to use his power and authority to enforce honor or respect. It says there in verse 7, he emptied himself. He completely gave over every advantage, privilege that he had as God. In fact, there were five ways in which he emptied himself. He gave up his glory that he had in heaven with his Father. He gave up his ability to make independent decisions of his own authority. He voluntarily gave up the exercise of many of his attributes, even though he still held them as part of his essence. There were times when he chose not to exercise his omniscience or omnipotence. He gave up his riches that he had in heaven with his father. And probably of the greatest was he gave up his ability to be face-to-face. As it says in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was face-to-face with the Father. He gave up that, that privilege when he took on flesh and came to this earth. Verse 7, Jesus submitted himself under the Father's authority. It says he took the form of a slave. Think about that for a minute. You're God, 
and you take the form of a slave. Not a servant. He's a slave. Submitting perfectly to his father's will. Jesus didn't own any clothes. He didn't own any land. He didn't have any property, gold. Everything that he had, he borrowed. Even the donkey on which to get into Jerusalem, he had to borrow. He was a slave. He was made in the likeness of man. One of the things that I look forward to asking God when I get to heaven is, how did this work? How was He perfectly 100% God, 100% man? It's a great question. But that's what happened. He humbled Himself by being willing to come a man. Very humbling to be a part of His creation, even though He was the Creator. He had all the attributes of humanity... And he came down and was part of a world that was corrupt, broken, imperfect. And then it says in verse 8, he humbled himself. The word's a different word there, and the emphasis is in relation to other men. He was willing to allow men to mock him make fun of him, disrespect him. He was willing to humble himself and allow that to occur. He was never defensive. He wasn't bitter. He didn't demand anything. He didn't make any accusations. He didn't didn't assert his rights as God. He humbled himself. And last of all, he obeyed his father perfectly. Notice there in verse 8, he became obedient to the point of death. As it says in John 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does... These things the Son also does in like manner. Jesus said repeatedly in John, I don't do anything. He's God. He's absolutely God, and He does nothing of His own initiative. He's perfectly obedient to whatever the Father requires of Him. His obedience went to the point of even dying on a cross. We know the famous scene in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying. He knows His time has come. He's asked His, his apostles to pray with Him. And He's alone. And during that time, He says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for You. Remove this cup from Me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Even at that incredible time, as he was struggling in his humanity, he perfectly obeyed and said, Yes, 
I'm going to be obedient to the point of allowing myself to be arrested, allow myself to be mocked, and scourged and put on a cross. Jesus emphasized this, that what happened to him was willful, a choice that he made. John chapter 10 says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I have received from my Father. This commandment I have received from my Father. Yet, even though it's a commandment of Him, I lay it down of my own initiative. That is gentleness epitomized. It's an attitude of total surrender, total obedience, even to the point of death, death on a cross. I don't know about you, but I've got to ask the question, why would Jesus do that? Why would, as God, why would He be willing to humble Himself to that point? What's the heart motivation behind that? What's the purpose? What's the plan? And this is actually going to be key next week when we look at the fact that we're being commanded to be gentle. We have to ask the question, why is it, how is it that you and I can be gentle toward God even in the midst of the unfair, unjust, imperfect circumstances that you and I find ourselves in? How can we do that? Jesus is our example. I'm going to have to run through these because of time, but stay with me. Flip over to Hebrews 12, verse 2. What was the motivation for Christ? He gives multiple motivations in Scripture. But here's a good starting point. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. The verse says, Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Despising the shame, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I remember when I was a kid, I, I struggled with this verse because I thought it said Jesus saw the cross as joy. So he went to the cross because he was motivated about the joy of going to the cross. I didn't read it quite right. That's not what it's saying. It's saying that the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Well, the question is, well, what was the joy that was set before him? Such that he was willing to endure the cross and despise its shame. 
That's what we want to look at for the duration of this morning. And we're going to have to move fast. What were those joys that Jesus was looking at such that he was willing to go to the cross, humble himself, be gentle toward the Father, totally submissive to the plan that his Father had given him? Turn over to 1 Peter, verse 1. And we'll look at the first joy that was set before Christ. If you flip there to verse 17, 1 Peter chapter 1. What we're going to see is in eternity past, the Father chose the Son to be the Lamb that would take away the sins of the world and that Christ would be glorified. That was always the plan. That's what it was before he even started. So Jesus knew what the plan was. And it was determined in eternity past. Verse 17, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with Verse 19, but with precious blood, as of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Messiah. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. See, it was known that the Messiah, the Christ, would fulfill certain roles. And Jesus was going to be that Christ, that Messiah. He was, it was foreknown that it was His precious blood that would purchase the redemption, the salvation of the world. And then He would be glorified. So that's what's the key here. Of the first principle is that in eternity past, the Father chose His Son to die for the sins of the world so that He would be resurrected to glory. I'm willing to humble myself because I know I'm going to be glorified. Second point. Turn over to 1 Peter 2, verse 21. The reason why these points are so important here as well, coming out of 1 Peter, is Peter's writing to Christians who are suffering. They're being persecuted for their faith. And so Peter is giving them theological motivation for why it is that they should live the way that they should. And 1 Peter is probably the best book to go read on how to live when they're suffering, and it's probably the best book to read on submission to authority. And you ask, why in the world are we to submit to authority while suffering? And by the way, if that's the case, how do I do that? That's exactly what the book of 1 Peter is about, is understanding God, His authority, 
And the reason by which we can submit to his authority, honor him, even in the midst of unjust, unfair persecution. And so the principles that he lists are there for our edification so we can have the proper motivation. It's having a correct perspective. And Jesus also had the correct perspective. So if you look there at uh, chapter 2, verse 21. For you have been called for this purpose, referring to Christians, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in His steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in His mouth. And while being reviled, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly, righteously. Notice the situation here. Peter is saying, you and I are to do exactly what Jesus did. And what's he describing? He's describing that Jesus suffered the greatest injustice in all the earth. He was the absolutely perfect person and God, the Creator, And he was treated to the most inhumane, uh, cruel death. But how did Jesus respond to that injustice? How did Jesus respond to being falsely accused? There was no deceit found in his mouth. He had committed no sin. And yet, when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And while suffering, he didn't utter any threats. But what did he do? It was a mindset. It was a mindset. He was entrusting himself to him or his Father who judges righteously. And he himself bore sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you were healed. Now here's what's interesting. Here He is experiencing the injustice, and He's surrendering to His Father, saying, I know that you're seeing everything. You're going to take care of it. And I'm confident of that. That's why I don't need to defend myself. You got this. And I believe that. Now it gets even better. No need to turn there. Just mark John 5, verse 21. This is what Jesus said. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, so that all who will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father... He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Jesus says here before He even died, Oh, by the way, who's going to ultimately be doing judgment on Judgment Day? Me. Me. So why is He able to take injustice? Why is He able to be reviled? Why is He not lashing out? Because Judgment Day is coming, and He's the one who will judge justly. That's an amazing principle. That's an amazing truth. 
And as we'll see next week, that has a huge, let me rephrase that, it should have a huge impact in your life and mine if I believe that. Because when you're experiencing injustice, how do you respond? Do you and I sin when others sin against us and say, well, you know, they sinned against me. It's okay for me to sin against them. If anybody was just in that, it would be Christ. He was absolutely perfect. He was absolutely innocent. And yet he took all the injustice without a word. How are we to respond when there's injustice? Especially when we know Jesus himself will be there on Judgment Day. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. See, Jesus was able to suffer injustice because he knew the joy was on Judgment Day, he will get to vindicate. See, he knew the future plan so he could suffer the present injustice. Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Also, if you flip uh, just one over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. I know we're flipping a lot here, but you guys are doing good. See, this is the rest of that passage that we read earlier of why Jesus was willing to humble himself. That was verses 2 through 8. And we're going to see this is what he knew was true, verses 9 through 11, as to why he was doing, willing to do verses 6 through 8. For this reason, for this motivation, if you want to say Because Jesus was so obedient, because he was willing to die even to the place of going on the cross, verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name on which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, Jesus knew that his father was going to exalt him to the right hand, the place of power and authority, and was going to give him a name by which every knee and every tongue would worship him. See, you're willing to be gentle and humble yourself when you know to the level that you humble yourself, you're going to be exalted. In essence, let's put it this way. To the level that Jesus was the perfect example of humility and gentleness, he was willing to empty himself of what he was wanting for the glory of the Father. That's why the Father gives him the ultimate reward. His name is above every name. 
He's at the right hand. There's only one right hand. It's for Him. That's why He could go to the cross. That's why He could humble Himself. Turn to John 10. We'll look at another one of His joys that He was looking forward to as to why He was willing to humble Himself and be gentle toward the Father. John 10, verse 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What was the other reason why Jesus was willing to humble himself? While he was, why it was that he was willing to be on the cross, suffer the wrath of the Father? He received the punishment that you and I should receive. Why was he willing to do that? Because he knew that he was purchasing your salvation and my salvation. He was going to give us life. And he knew that everyone that the Father had given to him, he would receive. Man, do you guys know that you were the joy that was set before Christ as to why he was willing to suffer and die? He did it for you. He did it for me. Turn over to Ephesians 5. Verse 23. Ephesians 5, verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church, and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. If you add that with Revelation 19, Verse 7, no need to turn there. You may just want to mark that down. Where the wedding feast occurs, just before Jesus comes back for His second coming. God the Father was giving Jesus a bride. He's the bridegroom. And He's giving Jesus a bride. And through Jesus' sacrifice, He's washing and cleansing His bride.
so that he could present to himself her in purity and holiness. Absolutely beautiful picture of the gospel. And last of all, once you flip over to 1 Corinthians 15. Here's an incredible final joy. There's others, but uh, this is big. This is a huge joy that Jesus was looking forward to when He went to the cross. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 23. In this passage, Paul is talking about the resurrection and giving instruction about it, the order of resurrection, uh, who's involved. And so we're kind of coming in the middle of uh, this passage. And he says, starting in verse 23, But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming, referring to his second coming, then comes the end. When Jesus, I'll just insert that there, when Jesus hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority, and power, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy will be, that will be abolished is death. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. This is the ultimate, final story. This is the end of the movie. This is when you cheer. This is when you don't go get popcorn. Uh, this, this, is the, this is what it's all about. When Jesus was taking, making the choice to take on flesh, He was willing to empty Himself of all of His privileges. What He was thinking about was not only you and me, His bride that He would take, He was thinking about this right here, that He ultimately was going to put, because of His victory on the cross, through His resurrection, by His reign through the millennial kingdom, He's going to subject Satan and throw him into hell. That's in Revelation 20. He's going to put death, Hades, and all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, all the enemies of God the Father and Christ will be sent to the lake of fire. And then at that point, as it says here in Corinthians, Jesus will then take all of heaven and earth, and as it says below the earth, Whatever that means, not sure. Uh, and uh, that he's subjected underneath his feet, under his authority. He's going to take that, offer it to the Father, and then subject himself to him. The end. That's the story. That's the motive. That's why. Jesus humbled himself and took on flesh. 
So when we look at this passage and James says that we are to put on humility, which is a fruit of wisdom, the word that he's using here is this attitude which was modeled in Christ. And he's saying that's the first thing that should be true in your life and mine. Do I see myself... Do I see my circumstances? Do I see other people in my life the way that Jesus does? Am I here for me or am I here for him? See, Jesus, he surrendered everything for the glory of the Father. And we see at the very end, Jesus is giving all glory and honor to the Father. It's all about him. That's the end game. As Christians, our end game is that Jesus and the Father and the Spirit are glorified. That's the end game. But James is asking the question, is that you? Because he said in the church there are two types of people. There are those who are selfish, bitter, and jealous. And it's all about them. And their fruit is very evident. Disorder, rebellion against God evil of every kind. James said that the genuine believer who believes in the wisdom that's from heaven, the fruit that will be in his life is an attitude of, it's not about me. I'm emptying myself. It's for him and for his glory. And I'm even willing to suffer in this life for his glory. But I'm only willing to do that if I believe the end game. See, when you think about it, when you and I get something that we didn't ask for in our life, or there are things that we want and we're not getting, and we choose to go sin, we're saying, what I want right now is more important than God's glory. Me, myself, and I is king. James is challenging his audience. It should not be this way. You are to be gentle. And next week we're going to look at what does that look like for us as Christians. But I first wanted you to see the perfect example of gentleness. Christ. Who was everything who became as nothing. Why? So that he could exalt his father. But he knew the end game. His name would be above every name. Why don't you turn real quick to Matthew. And we'll end with this. Matthew 11, verse 28. This passage is meant for unbelievers, but it's relevant. The, pr- the principle here is for whether or not you've made that decision to surrender to Jesus' authority for the first time, or today maybe it's a challenge of, you know what, I've lost track of perspective of what God has done for me. Maybe I again need to submit to his authority anew today. Look at verse 28, chapter 11. Come to me, 
all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This reminds me of the picture of Paul Bunyan's story. Uh, John Bunyan. Paul Bunyan. It's, I'm thinking of the blue ox. John Bunyan. Uh, it's my Minnesota days coming back. Sorry. Uh, and uh, Christian. And the story... Christian is walking and he's got a big burden. And the whole goal of the story is to get rid of his burden. That's what Jesus is stating here. He's talking to the Jews who have just been carrying the burden of of the law, trying to keep the law. They're unable to keep the law. And he says, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. See, when it talked about yoke, There's two pictures there, two truths, two principles. One is, as a yoke, when you had two two, uh, cattle who are going to go out and plow, when you put a yoke there, they went the same direction. They couldn't do what they wanted. They had to work with the team. Jesus is saying, are you willing to yoke yourself with me and let me take charge? Are you willing to come under my authority? You're no longer on your own. The second is, during this period of time, the rabbis, uh, when a person would come and come to a rabbi and, and a, a student would say, Rabbi, I, I want to follow you. Uh, I want to be your student. Uh, his set of teachings that a rabbi would hold would be called his yoke. It was a set of teachings. Are you willing to are you, are you willing to follow my yoke? so to speak. It was a concept uh, at that time. So Jesus is saying, are you willing to submit to the gospel the fact of who I am? I'm God. I died for you because of your sin. And I am at the right hand of the Father. And I'm going to be judged someday. And I'm offering you eternal life. That's my teaching. Are you willing to submit to that? And then are you willing to be yoked with me to where it's no longer your life, but it's my life being lived through you for my glory, not yours. You can't have one without the other. So Jesus is saying this morning to each and one of us, he's gentle and humble in heart, and he's offering you to get rid of your burden because His is light. Are you willing to trust Him today the way that He desires for His glory and not yours? Let's pray. Precious Father, it's absolutely humbling to look at the example of of your son 
Lord, we're not able to keep that standard. So perfect, so honoring to you. Father, you you receive such glory in the majesty of crushing your own son. The greatest love and yet the greatest injustice of all history. Lord, you've called us to be gentle as genuine believers. Lord, to have an attitude towards you that we are not going to fight against you. We're not going to complain against the will that you have chosen for us. Lord, you've asked us in being gentle to be at rest, to trust you. Lord, help us. Lord, I just really pray for anyone who came this morning and, Lord, their soul is troubled. Lord, they've been kicking against the goads. They've been angry at you. And, Lord, they have not been grateful for what you've chosen for their life. Lord, I pray that you would help them to humble themselves and give you thanks because you are a good and sovereign God. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your son's name, amen.